Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Sometimes as parents, we can go a little bit overboard. I think we can overdo it uh, sometimes. Thinking in particular maybe about like a nine-year-old boy who's about to go up to the plate to take an at-bat in a game of baseball. And you can envision a parent, you know, right, right behind home plate. Put your elbow up. Get, get close to the plate. Not too close to the plate. Look for your pitch. You know, nothing up here, nothing down here. Just look for your pitch, right? Just your pitch. Don't swing too hard. We're not going for the fences. Just make solid contact. Don't look at me. Look at the pitcher. Get your elbow up, right? We can overdo it a little bit. Or maybe a mom, their kid's about to go out and sled in the, in the freezing snow. You have two pairs of socks on, an extra pair of gloves. You know those guys are going to get wet. Do you have your long underwear on, right? Are you warm enough? It's going to be cold. Why do parents overdo it? Sometimes we overdo it because we want them so badly to succeed, to succeed. We want them to do well, right? We want them to be protected. You kind of get that impression from the Apostle John as you analyze the language of this last passage in this letter. To be clear, John doesn't overdo it. He doesn't overdo it, but he does reemphasize some things he's already covered. It's like over and over, John wants to make sure you and I know these basic truths. He wants to make sure that you and I are secure in our relationship with Christ. And so he circles over these themes, namely the theme that simple faith in the real Jesus makes a real difference and provides real assurance for our lives. It's clear that John is passionate, my friends, passionate that we know these things. He so badly wants us to succeed. He wants us to be protected as we live this life. And by the way, what a special truth this is. Is it not such a special truth? The fact that God wants us to know. He wants us to be sure of our relationship with him, to be secure of our eternal destiny. We don't have to live in fear, my friends. What a blessing this is for our lives. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to fear death. We're free because we're in Christ. We're free. We're not like walking on eggshells, wondering if that particular sin kind of pushed me outside the camp, wondering how we might do enough to get back in the good graces of God. This is how many people, if not most people, live And it's a life that is not secure. John is so passionate that you and I would know that we are in him and that the basis of that knowledge is in Christ and Christ alone. Amen? What a blessed truth this is. So John circles these themes one final time. And I want you to see it as we work through this last passage. In fact, you'll see it worked in reverse This real assurance is where we start in verse 13. So check it out in your text, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. We did a deep dive on this last week. 
But I wanted to start here again. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may have this rock solid assurance that you are in Him and you will forever be in Him. You're secure with your Father. And yet as this text continues, I want to ask this question. What do kids who are secure in their relationship with their father do? What do secure kids do? I would suggest to you that secure kids ask for stuff. This is what my kids do. They ask for stuff, right? On an almost nightly basis, my sweet little daughter. She will like even dispense with the proper forming of a question and just simply say, ice cream? Daddy, ice cream? And perhaps part of that is because she knows I might want some too, but that's beside the point. What do kids do? They ask for stuff. They ask for stuff. Check out your text, verse 14. What does this confidence lead to? John says, an evidence of security is this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. What do believers do when they are secure in their relationship with God? They pray. They ask for things. Why? Because we know that we are in him. And we know because of our relationship with God, through Christ, that is secure, we know we will be heard. That we will be heard. And in fact, the language of hearing here is a language that is akin to doing. It's equated in John's mind to doing. It's the kind of language uh, that parents might use with their kids when they say something like this. Did you hear what I said? Did you hear what I said? Well, what's implied there? What's implied there is that if you did hear what I said, you should be doing something, right? This is in the language of hearing that John uses. That God is not just aware when his people, people pray. He's not just aware of what they are saying, what they are asking. He's active in it. Uh, God is active in his people's prayer. So there is a question here, though. As you check out this text, verses 14 and 15, you might have this question. Well, Dustin, does that mean that I have or I get everything I ask for? It's what it seems to say. Do I have everything I ask for? And the answer is actually yes. It's a qualified yes, but it's a yes. Okay, now look at it. See what, that what I'm saying is true. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Remember, this is a hearing that equates to doing, and if we know that he hears us, verse 15, in whatever we ask, we know that we have, we have the requests that we've asked of him. What does that say? It sure sounds like we get what we ask for. Well, in order to really understand what's going on here, we have to understand a particular phrase in verse 14. What is that phrase? If we ask anything according to his will. Anything 
that is lined up, that is in accordance with the will of God, God is active in that. But still, that needs teasing out, doesn't it? Because I think it's very possible that you and I would say, well, I'm asking God for this, and it very much seems like it's in accordance with the will of God, according to the word of God, and yet I'm still not seeing him act. How should we understand that? How do we process that? So John is not saying that if we can justify every prayer request that we have according to the word of God, that God has to, therefore, do it. That God has to, therefore, act because I merely prayed. No, John is tethering this to the decreed will of God. Everything that we ask according to the will of God, he hears us and we have that. We have whatever we ask in accordance with his will. So, question, what if I ask something that I'm saying, this is clearly in line with the will of God according to the word of God, and I'm not seeing him act, at least not in the present, according to my timetable. Like, how do I wrestle with that? How do I deal with that? <clears throat> the answer is, we trust our Father. I think about this in context. We trust our Father. The same relationship that beckons us to come, that beckons us to know that we are secure, is the same relationship that beckons us to trust. When it seems like we're asking for good things, right, things that are in line with his will, and yet we're not seeing him act, or at least according to our timetable, what do we do? We trust. We trust. We continue to ask, and yet we trust the goodness of our God. This is what kids that are secure will do. Now, verses 16 and 17, check out your text, seem to serve as an example of the kind of things we're talking about. An example of the kind of requests that we might ask God for. In short, we ought to be praying for each other. We ought to be concerned to pray for one another. Let's read it together. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask. This tethers it back to the previous section, right? All about asking. He shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin, John says, that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Let's pause here for a moment. Understand that John is not forbidding that someone pray for that. Now, you might say, well, what is that? What is the sin leading to death? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But I just want to make the point here that John is not forbidding that one would pray, but rather he's not commanding that one should in this moment. And I think we'll see why via context. Verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. So what is this all about? Okay, it seems like really confusing language. Sin leading to death, not leading to death. What's it all about? I would suggest to you that when John uses the language of death here, he's not referring to physical death. He's referring to spiritual death. I believe this for three major reasons. Uh, first, I would say this because all sin leads ultimately to physical death. We know that according to the word of God, Romans 5 and verse 12, where God says, whereby 
as by one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. So everyone, everyone will die physically with the exemption of those who will be raptured. Everyone will die physically as a result of the presence of sin. Okay, so sin leads ultimately to physical death for everyone. The second reason why I believe that, that what John is referring to here is spiritual death is because this particular phrase, not leading to death, is found in the Bible only one other place, and that is by the Apostle John in his Gospel. And in that reference, it is an explicit reference to spiritual death. I'm not going to take you there uh, today for time's sake, but it's an explicit reference to spiritual death. And then the third reason I believe that this is spiritual death is uh, via context, because of an all-important context, which we will get to here momentarily. So what I think John is doing in verse 16, what I believe John is doing in verse 16, is telling us to pray for one another, okay, when we sense or see that our brother or sister is mired in sin, struggling with something, or committing sin, or perhaps even walking away from the truth. What should go off in us? What should go off in us as we see that is a desire to pray, a desire to talk to our Heavenly Father about it. I'm concerned about my brothers and sisters. This is a sin that's not leading to death. It's not leading them to hell. Okay? It's not going to lead them to hell. They are secure. They are a brother or sister. But they're wandering. What should we do? We should pray. Okay? We should pray. We should be concerned about our brothers and sisters. In fact, I like what one commentator writes when he says it this way. If you see a brother or sister in sin, don't talk first to others about them. That would be gossip. Talk first to God about them. Pray for their restoration because this is always God's will. It's always God's will for his people to turn from sin to walk in truth. So I believe that when John is writing here about death or sin leading or not leading to death, it's about spiritual death. So saying in verse 16, pray for your brothers and sisters. So what is the sin leading to spiritual death? I would suggest to you via context that John is here referencing the false teachers and those that went out with them. Again, tying this back to John, uh, 1 John chapter 2 and our awareness that there was a group of people that were amongst them. They were a part of this group of people that left. They abandoned true teaching about Jesus, true teaching about who he was and what he did, and who he still remains to be. They had abandoned that, and thus, they are in danger of hellfire. They are in danger of the death that is eternal, a spiritual death. So John says, I'm not commanding you guys to pray for that. I don't want you to be thinking about that group that's left and have proven themselves and not really be of. I'm asking you to think about your family those who join you in being secure in your relationship with Christ. Okay, so I hope that's helpful for you to understand this text. But before we leave it, let me just say this. We ought to pray for one another, my friends. We ought to live in community in proximity enough to know 
when one another is perhaps a bit down or a bit distant, that we might pray. And let's heed the warning, not to immediately just talk to other people about them. Why don't we first talk to God? This is evidence that we have an ongoing relationship with our Heavenly Father, that it's an ongoing conversation. And when I see someone that I know is different, they're discouraged, perhaps they're down, or I actually see them committing sin, what should I do? I just start talking to God about it. God, would you help them? Would you encourage them? Would you bring truth to bear in them? I think we don't spend enough time praying, my friends. We don't spend enough time praying. Uh, we tend to think that we can get more done by talking, don't we? And I think the Bible over and over reminds us that perhaps we should just start praying. Consider the words of Spurgeon. I was inspired by these. He said this, Might not we win more victories if we more, can more constantly use this weapon of prayer? All hell is vanquished when the believer bows his knee in importunate supplication. Beloved brethren, let us pray. We cannot all debate, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevalent in prayer. So Spurgeon said, I would sooner see you eloquent with God than with men. Amen. Prayer links us with the eternal, the omnipotent, the infinite, and hence, it is our chief resort. Is it our chief resort? I hope so. I hope that the security we have with God leads us to talk to him. Leads us to be men and women of prayer. So, John has written, verse 13, that we might know, and one evidence of our knowing is in our asking. In our asking. And as we continue in this theme, all right, we move now backwards to the real difference. The real difference. The prayer makes, but perhaps more apropos, that Jesus makes. The real Jesus makes in our lives. Check it out in your text, verse 18. See how John just continues to hover around these themes. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 18 again. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now again, John is not suggesting here that once a person comes to know Jesus, they no longer sin. That they never sin again. He makes that very clear elsewhere. But John again is saying, and even you can see it in the language here that's very important, is that when someone comes to know Jesus, they have a, a very different relationship to sin. Their relationship to sin is fundamentally altered. It's fundamentally different. So the, the idea of keep on sinning is important. A trajectory has changed in an individual's life, whereas they used to sort of sin as a pastime, perhaps unwittingly, unaware of the law of God or uncaring about the law of God. Now they're different. Something has changed in their heart and life. And I think you see in this text, too, things that make a sweeping difference. 
a sweeping change in someone's life. Check it out. First of all, they've been born again. They've been born again. Again, notice that language of born. They have been transformed is the idea. And John knows, and again, hearkening back to John chapter 3, that the Spirit of God comes in. The Spirit of God works this regeneration such that people are transformed from the inside out. This transformation happens internally and then just sort of works its way out in their life, making difference, making sweeping change in their life. Why? Because the Spirit is here. And our eyes have been uh, opened, like the scales have been removed. Now we see the Word of God for what it is. Man, it's life for us, right? It's life for us. It's not an annoyance. It's not a killjoy. It's life for us now. We understand the Word of God. We have His Spirit. Therefore, being born again brings about change. It has to, right? As this whole thing that's inside us, internal, is working its way out. This is, this is transformation. This, this is not about someone like trying harder to do better. Okay? It's not someone turning over a new leaf. It's not what it's about. This is about transformation. This is a new individual. I mean, think about individuals like Saul of Tarsus and then the Apostle Paul. This is Galilean fishermen to men who turn the world upside down. It's fundamental transformation. Complete change. This is Philippian jailer to a Philippian for Jesus. It's change. And I would just say to you that one of the blessings of being a part of a family of faith, my friend, whereby you are consistently gathering with God's people and gathering with people in small group is that you get to see this firsthand. As I was thinking about this this week, that, like the Lord brought to mind a handful of faces, actual faces, and I'm going like, I've seen marked difference. Marked difference in their life. Their whole countenance is different. From confusion to joy and hope. Right? Maybe people that went from being a loner to now present and warm and engaging. Right? The Spirit of God is, is on their countenance. On their face. And God brought their faces to my mind. And it's like, this is so cool. So cool to see this in action. See this on people's faces. They've been born of God. This brings about real difference. But then there's a second one here that's so, so beautiful, so encouraging. Be encouraged this morning, my friends. Verse 18 goes on to say, But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, verse 19, the whole world of people that don't know Jesus, they, they lie under the sway, under the influence of the evil one. Not so with God's people, though. Why? Look at verse 18. They're protected. Not only internally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they are protected by who? Verse 18 is so rich. 
Friends, so rich. I was thinking this week, someday I'm going to come back and just preach a whole sermon on verse 18. So I was blown away by this. Look, look at how John uses this parallel phrase, born of God, in two different ways. First of all, for those who've been born again, everyone who has been born of God or born again, changed by the power of the gospel, does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, this is not born again. This is incarnation. How cool is this? So rich, so deep. He who was born of God, the born one, the incarnate God, God in the flesh, image of the invisible God. This is Jesus. John is referencing Jesus protects him. Jesus is with his people all the time. Therefore, note that last phrase of verse 18. And feel free to just say amen in your hearts before the Lord. Thus, the evil one does not touch him. Wow, that's huge for you and I in our lives. Massive. Because Jesus is with us. The evil one can't touch you. You battle with fear, anxiety, worry. Meditate on these two verses. You are, if you are in Christ, protected. Protected. The evil one can't touch you. Why? Because you are protected by the presence of Christ. So this doesn't mean, my friends, that we won't struggle with sin. What it means is that we will never struggle without hope. What it means is that we will never struggle alone. Isn't this great? Because he's with us. He's with us. We never have to be in despair. Sometimes it feels like that, right? But John says, you don't have to be there because you're not alone. Lean in to the person of Christ. Lean in to the presence of the Holy Spirit of God with you. He's there. I love what one commentator said when he said it this way. It means that as we struggle against sin, we do so with a confidence, not despair. Our protector is stronger than our enemy. More vigilant and more concerned than we can ever be. He's fighting for you. He's protecting you. What a blessing. And I would say, is there a better picture of this than what we read last week from John 10? This picture of sheep and their shepherd. Consider it again, this language. Jesus says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. When the enemy comes, he runs away. But this is not the way of the shepherd. This is not the way of the shepherd. Jesus said he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus runs out and meets the wolf. He stands guard by his people. Hear these words as one of his sheep. My friends, seeing your shepherd standing watch. Watching for that wolf to charge. He's going to take him out. The evil one cannot touch him. 
My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. You're never fighting alone, my friends. You're never fighting alone. Let me encourage you. If you want, it's not a rule, but keep a handle laying around. It's good. Okay? Poetry is such a good thing for our soul. Good gospel poetry. Such a good thing. This morning, I keep a couple of hymnals laying around my office. This morning, as I was thinking about this message, the Lord brought to mind the words of a mighty fortress is our God. Let me just read some of this. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. We feel that, don't we? His wrath, his craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. This is drawn by language of Ephesians 6. Okay? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Did we, in our own strength, confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Luther says, glad you asked. <laughs> Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Saviour, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him, his rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. What little word will fail him. Amen? Yeah. Hear that in the language of verses 18 and 19. The evil one cannot touch him. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, that, my friends, makes a big-time difference in our lives. When we immerse ourselves into that truth, it makes a big difference in our lives. All because of the man, the right man who is on our side, the man of God's own choosing, the real Jesus. And that's where John ends. And we come full circle. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God. Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Remember I said a few moments ago that John continues to circle these themes. Boy, he does it here, doesn't he? In verse 20, this is all about God and his son, Jesus Christ. And the fact that we can know him, we can know who he is. Who he is is not up for grabs. John wants his people to know this and be confident about this. So again, look at the language of it, of verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come. We know that the Son of God has come. The Messiah has actually come. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God and has given us understanding. 
We're not waiting around for some mystical enlightenment. We have what we need to know. We have it, John says, so that we may know him who is true. He is true. And we are in him who is true. Isn't this good? He's just hammering away at these truths he's been writing about. He doesn't overdo it, but he's like that passionate parent. Like, are you sure you're good? Do you guys have this? You ready to go out there? It's cold out there. It's, it's tough out there. It's rough out there. Are you good? Are we good? Man, he's, he's hitting the point. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God. Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. The truth about him is not up for grabs, my friends. It's certain, it's real, it's true. If you know him, you have him. What a blessing that is. In verse 20, it's, it's almost like one of those moments where you're like, okay, John, tell us how you really feel, man. <laughs> tell us how you really feel about Jesus. John is passionate. Harkening back to the very first paragraph. He's passionate because he was there. He saw him. He saw him. He was in the upper room. When Jesus installed his table, he was there. In fact, the author of this letter was leaning upon him. Think about that. You better believe he's passionate. Passionate about this. So he says, don't take your eyes off of him. Guys, girls, men, ladies, don't take your eyes off of him. Don't take your eyes off of the real Jesus. This is what he's getting at in verse 21. Check it out. John ends this letter with little children, beloved ones, dear ones, keep yourself from idols. It seems kind of an odd way to end, doesn't it? Kind of abrupt, kind of random. And it is a little abrupt, and it is a little unusual. Okay? It is a little unusual, but it's not random. Why? Let's think about what idols were for a moment and what idols are. Idols fundamentally are a misrepresentation or an underrepresentation of the true God. A misrepresentation or an underrepresentation of the true God. This is why God's first command, if you look back at the Ten Commandments, God's first command about idolatry was that his people would not make any kind of graven image about him. But we tend to think of idols as sort of relics and icons and statues, right? Maybe that other religions would put up to say that this is the rain god, right? We need rain, therefore we're going to chip away at this piece of wood and craft what we might think the rain god might look like, and then we're going to prop him up in a temple and we're going to go and pray and maybe we'll get, get some rain out of the deal. Now, certainly God forbids that. But his first prohibition of idolatry was that God's people would not try to reflect who he is in a piece of wood. Why? Because God is infinite. He is infinite in every way. He cannot be imaged by a piece of wood or a piece of gold. You cannot accurately reflect God in a statue. Right? So God says, don't do it. Now, how does all of that relate to this? It relates directly, my friends. 
directly to everything we've seen in the book of 1 John. Because it starts with an understanding of the real Jesus. When John says, little children, keep yourself from idols, John is saying, don't leave the true Jesus for a fake one. Don't leave off the true understanding of the Messiah, the true understanding about who Jesus was and is for a phantom from a false representation of him. John is saying, stick to the truth. To us, keep preaching the gospel. Do it to yourself. And as a church, hold a church accountable to keep preaching the gospel. This is why we must never be ashamed of precision about Jesus. Who he was and is, it's central to everything. So for John, he knows that if you take away the true understanding of Jesus, the dominoes fall from there. This is why we've talked about the real Jesus making the real difference and bringing about real assurance. For in the Gnostic doctrine or the pre-Gnostic doctrine, the false Jesus didn't really of necessity make an actual difference, didn't make a tangible difference in their lives other than perhaps giving them an elitist arrogance. But John says the real Jesus will. The real, you cannot encounter the real Jesus and leave unchanged. Amen. The real Jesus will change your life. Thus, we have to know who he is. We have to remain solid on who he is. For the real Jesus makes sweeping change. Amen? Amen. And then brings about unbelievable assurance. Beautiful security and assurance. Thus, my friends, we must keep preaching the gospel. With regard to the real Jesus, we must keep preaching the gospel. With regard to the real difference, I believe that as we keep preaching the gospel, and as we keep looking at him, we will see the difference. We'll see the difference. As we yield ourselves to him, we'll see the difference over time in one another. And I hope that that's true in this body. Over time, we'll see the difference that Christ makes, the real one. The difference he makes in our lives. And then, finally, we get, we get to live in the real assurance that he provides. Amen? So good. So good for our souls to know. To know that we are in him. As our eyes are fixed on him and he makes change in us every single day. I believe God wants us to be whispered with, you're mine. Son, daughter, you're mine. You're secure. I'm holding you in my hand, and nothing can take you out. This brings confidence. This eradicates fear. It brings joy. And it's a change that keeps on happening. My friends, the real Jesus makes a real difference and brings about real assurance for our hearts and lives. Put this in your belt of truth, my friends. Lock it in and remind yourself of it, of it frequently. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to leave it there. Love you guys. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace. You're so good, so kind. 
Thank you for your truth. Your truth is so sweet. Thank you for relentlessly reminding us of who the real Jesus is. Thank you for making it clear, easy to see. And I thank you for offering us assurance. I pray, God, that this body would be marked with, characterized by a joy and confidence that is contagious because it's resting in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us for the podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Heritage Bible Church, we hope that you will visit our website at heritagebiblelincoln.com.